This is potentially catastrophic. I have a whole stack of books to read. Joy Harjo's Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings. Venice by Jan Morris. Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. Romeo and Juliet. And there's a whole bunch of books I read before. It's from the 1st of March, 2016. From the 27th of April, 27th of July. So I guess the only thing to do is see how the books speak to each other. <laughs> okay. Oh, brilliant. This is probably going to get weird. All right, y'all. Hello. Uh, welcome to episode 16. Um, that was the cat. Um, as you all know, this is an atmospheric podcast, and today's atmosphere uh, may be provided by uh, the landlords who are hanging out with the uh, small children of themselves um, doing yard work, which is just, it's an absolute delight to listen to them for me. So you might, you might hear them. And that's, that's what's going on. As well as the cat who does not like the sound of my voice and who therefore has to <laughs> move away from it very quickly because it makes him crappy. Um, so hello. Today I finished reading Saeed Jones' book of poetry called Prelude to Bruise that was published by Coffeehouse Press in 2014. I have mentioned before, uh, and will probably mention again, uh, a daily, a week daily Twitter news program called AM to DM that I watch. It is uh, made by BuzzFeed, and Saeed Jones is one of the hosts, along with Isaac Fitzgerald. Although when they, when one of them is... Yeah, okay, so something happened to 15 minutes of episode 16. I don't know what thing happened to 15 minutes of episode 16. So I'm here struggling to figure out how to recreate this conversation. The book of poetry is Prelude to Bruise by Saeed Jones. It was published by Coffeehouse Press in 2014. It is a book that is filled with bodies and the land and water and roads and travel and mythology and pain and blood and fire. And I felt unequal to the work of talking about it. So in the middle of my feeling somewhat unequal to the task, I went to my bookshelves, as I am wont to do, and I grabbed a book. And the books that I grabbed, and this was not necessarily by accident, I wanted something that would be well written and that would maybe give me better language than what I had. So I grabbed A.C. Bradley's book, Shakespearean Tragedy, which was originally published in um, 1904. We read it in our reading group. It is the most amazing book. I, I love these essays, but so there was already a bookmark in it. So I decided to open it up and I came to 
the lecture on Othello. That's where it was. But here's the thing. This helped. It helped enormously. And I would like to read to you the paragraph that helped. It's from page 167 and 168. But in point of substance, and in certain respects, in point of style, the unlikeness of Othello to Hamlet is much greater than the likeness, and the later play belongs decidedly to one group with its successors. The later play is Othello. We have seen that, like them, it is a tragedy of passion, a description inapplicable to Julius Caesar or Hamlet. And with this change goes another, an enlargement in the stature of the hero. There is, in most of the later heroes, something colossal, something which reminds us of Michelangelo's figures. They are not merely exceptional men, they are huge men, as it were, survivors of the heroic age living in a later and smaller world. We do not receive this impression from Romeo or Brutus or Hamlet, nor did it lie in Shakespeare's design to allow more than touches of this trait to Julius Caesar himself, but it is strongly marked in Lear and Coriolanus and quite distinct in Macbeth and even in Antony. Othello is the first of these men, a being essentially large and grand, towering above his fellows, holding a volume of force which in repose ensures preeminence without an effort, and in commotion reminds us rather of the fury of the elements than of the tumult of common human passion. So I started to think about the relationship of heroes and the ancients, right? The heroic age, this idea of people who are beyond the quotidian, not necessarily because their bodies aren't mortal, but because their day-to-day -day lives are so far away from what is considered the day-to-day. -day. And originally I had planned to read poems that I could know how to explain it, explicate with something familiar. Uh, but now that I'm here, I kind of want to read something different. Okay, page 11, Daedalus after Icarus. Boys begin to gather around the man like seagulls. He ignores them entirely, but they follow him from one end of the beach to the other. Their footprints burn holes in the sand. It's quite a sight, a strange parade, a man with a pair of wings strapped to his arms, followed by a flock of rowdy boys. Some squawk and flap their bony limbs. Others try to leap now and then, stumbling as the sand tugs at their feet. One boy pretends to fly in a circle around the man, cawing in his face. We don't know his name or why he walks along our beach, talking to the wind. To say nothing of those wings, a woman yells to her son, ask him if he'll make me a pair. Maybe I'll finally leave your father. He answers our cackles with a sudden stop, turns and runs toward the water. The children jump into the waves after him. Over the sounds of their thrashes and giggles, we hear a boy say, we don't want wings. We want to be fish now. And I love the bringing of 
these incredibly old stories that are so old that, you know, even the words when they're translated into English kind of taste of dust um, into a world that is so specific and contemporary and it's so placed in its time and its time is, you know, not that long ago and the place is not that far away from here and still very much in the political boundaries of this country. Um, it's an incredible book and, and I'm, I'm pleased that I went and found it at the library um, and I look forward to more of his books. So that happened and then I grabbed the card and the card is from the 3rd of July 2016 and the card is about A Book of Migrations by Rebecca Solnit which was originally published in 1997 um, what I have is the revised paperback from 2011. It was published by Verso in London. Page 161. A healthy bloodstream is a very mixed community, and an updated metaphor based on blood would have to be one of multiplicity and mobility. Blood and soil make an even less appropriate pair for a grounding identity racially and spatially, since they are both zones of profound transformation. The eco-historian Paul Shepard describes soil as a skin mediating the mineral and biological communities. Just as blood moves through the body importing and exporting diverse substances to the outside world, so worms and microbes course through the soil, aerating it, turning it over, and transforming things at the ends of their lives, corpses, wastes, and decay, into fresh soil where the cycle will begin again. Soil is a festival of corruption and reinvention, the alpha and omega of all corporeal things. And my notes read, this isn't the first of Rebecca Solnit's books that I've read, but it is the first one that was written to tell one focused set of stories rather than a collection of otherwise thinly connected essays. It was eye-opening to me and very much convinced me of the value of writing nonfiction as a way of living, as well as a way of making a living. This text roams in one direction all over a country and its stories. Solnit does not ever become so entranced with her presence in a place that the place loses the spotlight. At the same time, she's very present as a speaker. The questions that she asks and histories that she relates, the people she chooses to talk to, and the amount of research she shares all point to a defined and confident presence, one that does not need to be the center of the story. Her prose is engaging and, at times, lilting. I found myself deeply moved on more than one occasion and know there are many passages I could gladly have copied out and oh, I could gladly have copied out and hanging in my room or on the walls near my desk. Solnit's life as a person who moves and does not move, who loves and loses is almost temptingly out of reach. But much as I read Jessica Crispin, it is hers and only shared for context not for consumption. This was an excellent first whole narrative of hers for me to begin with, as the traveling she does in and around Ireland happened at a pace and to an end that are both challenging and comfortable to my rhythms. Nothing happens quickly unless it has to, and here there is room to move slowly and overthink the weight of a footstep on an island. Oh my god. I love A Book of Migrations. It is such a beautiful book. And the other book I reference, um, by Jessica Crispin is called The Dead Ladies Project. So the thing that I'm struggling with is that there are some very real connections 
in terms just of the passage that I read out from um, the book of migrations, right? Between blood and soil and definition of self and the experience of being alive um, and moving and like the different reasons to move from a place. Um, and I think that, that there are some really captivating relationships that happen when you put these two books in conversation with each other. And I think that these two books are very much in conversation with each other. Um, I, I think actually all four of these books are very much in conversation with each other because they all focus on considering what happens when lives are looked at as more than a blip and as not consumable. They are challenging narratives. They are exceptionally well-written in four totally different styles. There's, there's nothing similar about the way that Rebecca Solnit writes to the way that Jessica Crispin writes, to the way that Saeed Jones writes, to the way that A.C. Bradley writes. And it's not solely the consequence of a hundred years of difference in how people make an argument or construct an essay. It has to do with a presence and a way of communicating ideas. And the bigness of the stories of people when they are given time and space to tell their own stories. Even, even, you know, in the case of Rebecca Solnit, when you know she's clearly, and the AC Bradley, these are not the people who are centered in these stories, um, even though they are the, the authors, you know, these are, these are significantly more well-controlled um, narratives. And I think that there's a lot to unpack, actually. So I had thought that I would sort of stop there, except that here's a thing. I have also been reminded of a moment in The Wind in the Willows. There's the chapter called The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. For those of you who haven't read The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham, what are you doing with your life? The book follows the adventures of Mole and Rat as they live in Rat's house, he's a river rat, on the river. They have a wide circle of friends, badger, otter, various birds, and other rats. And other, oh, and there's Toad. Probably you know about Toad. He is my least favorite. There is this beautiful chapter in the middle of the book where one of Otter's sons, Little Portly, has gone missing and Mole and Rat go look for him, along with a bunch of other people. And this is part of what happens. Suddenly the Mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head, and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic te terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy but it was an awe that smote and held him, and without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some august presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side, cowed, stricken, and trembling violently. 
And still there was utter silence in the populous bird-haunted branches around them, and still the light grew and grew. Perhaps he would never have dared to raise his eyes, but that, though the piping was now hushed, the call and the summons seemed still dominant and imperious. He might not refuse were death himself waiting to strike him instantly once he had looked with mortal eye on things rightly kept hidden. Trembling he obeyed and raised his humble head and then in that utter clearness of the imminent dawn while nature flushed with fullness of incredible color seemed to hold her breath for the event, he saw, he looked in the very eyes of the friend and helper, saw the backward sweep of the curved horns gleaming in the growing daylight, saw the stern hooked nose between the kindly eyes that were looking down on them humorously, while the bearded mouth broke into a half smile at the corners, saw the rippling muscles on the arm that lay across the broad chest, the long supple hand still holding the pan pipes only just fallen away from the parted lips, saw the splendid curves of the shaggy limbs disposed in majestic ease on the sward, saw, last of all, nestling between his very hooves, sleeping soundly in entire peace and contentment, the little, round, podgy, childish form of the baby otter. All this he saw for one moment breathless and intense, vivid on the morning sky, and still, as he looked, he lived, and still, as he lived, he wondered. Then the animals, the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. Sudden and magnificent, the sun's broad golden disk showed itself over the horizon facing them, and the first rays shooting across the level water meadows took the animals full in the eyes and dazzled them. When they were able to look once more, the vision had vanished, and the air was full of the carol of birds that hailed the dawn. As they stared blankly in dumb misery deepening as they slowly realized all they had seen and all they had lost, a capricious little breeze dancing up from the surface of the water tossed the aspens, shook the dewy roses, and blew lightly and caressingly in their faces, and with its soft touch came instant oblivion. For this is the last best gift that the kindly demigod is careful to bestow on those to whom he has revealed himself in their helping the gift of forgetfulness, lest the awful remembrance should remain and grow and overshadow mirth and pleasure, and the great haunting memory should spoil all the afterlives of little animals helped out of difficulties in order that they should be happy and light-hearted as before. So perhaps wherever it was that I went the last time that I put all these books together, It's okay that I have to go back. Walking roads more than once, I have never found to be a bad thing. I hope that this has been not rambling, but a bit messy because I feel like a thing that happens sometimes is that I try to make things too neat and sometimes that's not needed. So today's books were Prelude to Bruise by Saeed Jones and A Book of Migrations by Rebecca Solnit. Featured 
were A.C. Bradley's Shakespearean Tragedies and Jessica Crispin's Dead Ladies Project and The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. Blessings, you guys. Enjoy the weirdness. Thank you for listening to this episode of Potentially Catastrophic. You can find more information about the books at my Twitter account, which is twitter.com slash potentcastpod. And I have begun transcribing the audio files uh, for accessibility. So when those go up, I will let you know. And I have uh, put in to be on iTunes soon. So shortly, uh, we will be in more places than only SoundCloud. But for now, thanks so much to SoundCloud for hosting me. All right, we'll see y'all soon.